what do I do? Now, when we ask that question, what God wants us to do is to stop and think, what did God tell me to do when somebody's yelling at me? What did God say to do when somebody's angry at me? And why don't I try that? Why don't I just try what God has said? So in that case, we go to Proverbs 15.1. I'm just going to read these verses, uh, uh, so we're going to go rather quickly through them. But if you want to look them up or write them down, sure, go ahead. But it says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but harsh words uh, stir up anger. A gentle answer turns away wrath. So if I have somebody mad and yelling at me, maybe I did do something wrong, but we're never going to get through this uh, in, in any decent way unless somebody can calm this thing down. And God says, you do that. So if they're yelling and screaming at you, you don't yell back, you don't scream back, you quiet yourself down, and you answer in a, in a lower tone. I've tried that with people before, and it's amazing how uh, the volume just gets lower and lower and lower and lower. Uh, and as I've been testing that before, I found out that you can almost even get to a whisper, and next thing you know, they're whispering. It might be an angry whisper. Yes, I told you not, you know, but it, it gets quieted down. All right, what about a person who uh, doesn't like me, and I know I found out that they're spreading rumors all over town about me. Uh, what, what do I do? Years ago, one of Noel's relatives was staying with us, and uh, instead of coming to Sunday school, uh, he went to the uh, coffee shop down here, the little, <laughs> what was the name of that? Paul's Cafe. And uh, he didn't tell anybody who he was, and he's sitting there, and he says, do you have any idea what those people say about you down there? I said, nope, and I don't care. <laughs> you know? Uh, so, you know, I'm, I know I'm getting bad mouth somewhere all, all the time, but uh, what do I do about that? Well, I remember what it says in Ecclesiastes 6.11. And basically it says, For there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to a man? Another way to translate that is simply, the more the words, the less the meaning, and how does that help anybody? Well, it doesn't help anybody. So uh, what, what I have to realize is, it's better if I just don't say anything. It's better that I don't talk back. It's better that I don't get involved in that situation. In fact, I had another situation years ago when I was younger. Um, I don't know why I can't keep this up here. When I was younger, and uh, I actually called a friend of mine who was one of my professors, and I said, hey, here's what's happening, and they're bad-mouthing me. I, he said, what, I said, what should I do? He said, say nothing. And he quoted this verse to me. I love it when somebody gives you advice that comes right out of the Bible. It says, just don't say anything. Why is that? Why can I do that? Well, this one you might want to look up. I don't have it there. Well, you don't have notes anyway. Psalm 31, verse 20. Psalm 31:20. We need we need to remember who is on our side, and uh, God is on our side. Sometimes uh, what's being said about us is being fueled by the enemy of God, and the enemy of God's people. So in Psalm 31:20, uh, yep, it says of God dealing with His people. God says uh, the the psalmist says, "You hide them, God's people." in the secret place of your presence, from the conspiracies of man. You keep them secretly in a shelter from the strife of tongues. So I find my, I find my refuge in God. Uh, the more the talk is, the less it will mean, and so uh, that guy's advice to me was just let them talk. And sure enough, uh, that turned out to be exactly what I should have done. Well, let's say people are threatening me with harmful things, and I cannot control or stop them on my own. Uh, maybe somebody wants to beat me up or something like that. 
Uh, what comes to mind is Isaiah 54, 16, and 17, where it says, Behold, I myself have created the smith, this is God talking, he's talking about like a blacksmith, who blows the fire of the coals and brings out a weapon for its work. And I have created the destroyer to ruin. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will, you will condemn. One day God is going to use us in judging. Did you know we're all going to judge angels someday? Uh, did you know that uh, God is going to use us to stand as a witness against those who are wicked and evil? He will. And he says, going on there, this is the heritage. This is what I'm going to inherit. This is my pedigree, if you will of the servants of Yahweh. And their vindication, God says, is from me, declares Yahweh. Or what about a person who does wrong to me and he's been evil to me in some way? Uh, what do I do with that? Well, that word evil triggers in my mind uh, that passage in Romans uh, chapter uh, 12. And I think you all know it, but let me just go there anyway. Romans 12. So I'm searching the word of God to find out how do I handle this, okay? So someone's been, uh, been evil and nasty against me, and God says this. I could put my name in there, Greg. Never, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, notice, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And so as I look down through here, I'm starting to understand uh, that God says, I am not to take my own vengeance. I'm not to take revenge. Some people say, well, I have a right to be angry, so I can take vengeance. No, you might have a right to be angry, but you don't have a right to take vengeance. That's not what God said. So all the time during our day or when we're interacting with people, what we need to do is we need to think about what does God say? What's his advice about how do I handle this situation? And then that's how I handle it. Trust that he knows people better than you do, and he knows how to handle these situations better than you do or I do, so why don't we just trust him? All right, that's what uh, the uh, Lamed strophe is all about. So in verse 89 of, of Psalm 119, it says this, Forever, O Yahweh, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You established the earth, and it stands. They stand this day according to your ordinances, for all things are your servants. All things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. So what he's saying is that if I had not used the word of God, if I had not used the law, I would have perished in all this trouble, in this affliction. He says then, I will never forget your precepts. Why? Well, because they give us life and they sustain us in life. For by them you have revived me. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. For the wicked, wait for me to destroy me. I shall diligently consider your testimonies. Get that? The wicked are waiting and planning to destroy me. What do I do about that? How do I plan? I go to the word of God and I find out what should I do in response to what they're doing. He goes on to say, I have seen a limit to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. All right, in verses 89 to 91, we learned that creation stands, creations stand, demonstrates God's steadfastness, for all things are his servants. So what he's doing is he's looking around at creation. He says, this creation exists, and it stays here, and it's firm because of God's command, because God's in control, and that's the key. God is in control, so everything is firm. It stands. All his promises are firm, and they stand. 
So in verse 89, the psalmist makes the observation that when one looks at creation, it proves that the word of God stands firm on his word because it's the word and by the word that everything was created. It is fixed. It is firm. It's, it's like a pillar uh, from heaven. Excuse me, a pillar from heaven. Therefore, forever means that the word of God is never ending. And he uses that word. I want to look then uh, with that in mind uh, to what John did when he began his gospel. Uh, and in his gospel, he uses lots of comparisons or maybe even metaphors to teach us what Jesus is and what he is like. And he begins with that famous one in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He goes on to say, he was in the beginning with God. So as the curtain uh, came up where we start and we start to see creation, God is already there with the word. Jesus is already facing God the Father to show equality and oneness and he's already extant before creation began. He has oneness with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In other words, Jesus Christ, by the spoken word, put the world into uh, what we call creation, and he's the one that holds it all together. It's by his power it is sustained. So what we're supposed to understand is that's how powerful the word of God is. Uh, every, every day I show up here to work when I'm, when I'm coming to church and uh, all the pews are still here and the building's still here and the ground outside is still here and the trees are over there and it's because of the word of God and the power of the word. The word, the spoken command of God was already there before creation began. That means that the word is forever. God's word will never end. And I wanted to look at Matthew chapter 24 verse 30. Five uh, for that, Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now that doesn't take away from the firmness of God's word because God said, I've set a limit on this current earth. I've set a, a time when it will be no more. Uh, and that's going to stand firm as well. The point is the word of God is firm. In verse 90, the faithfulness of God to his spoken word is never wavering. All right, uh, with God, it is never yes, no. It is always either yes, yes, or no, no. The faithfulness of God in the spoken word does not waver. It lasts throughout all generations. All right, the same sun that I see come up in the morning, my great, great, great grandfather saw come up in his mornings. It's not changed. An example of this is that God has established the earth, and here it is, here it stands. The word stands has the idea of a firmness, a permanence. This is a guarantee of his faithfulness and God's ability, his sovereignty to keep his word. So we expect everything that he said about creation is going to happen. Remember, it's not God who messed up creation. We did with, with the sin. It, is also, it also has the nuance of doing the will of the sovereign. In other words, uh, we should obey God because his word is firm. It's like the attendant who stands before his king every day is there just to do the service of the king, and he trusts the king, and the king gives his word, and he, and he acts on it. In the first part of verse 91, the creation stands to this day by the power of the ordinance of God's word. We are seeing the creation is fixed by God and sovereignly held in the place by the power of God's word. What I want us to see is that the word of God is central to everything, all right? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation. What is the good news? The gospel message is the power of God unto salvation. And that was spoken by God's word, performed by Christ on the cross. 
And this stands to prove that we can count on God who keeps his word and who establishes his will and his creation by holding it firmly just where he wants it for his own purposes. In 91b, the psalmist makes the statement that all things in creation are servants of God. And I think we should take all there to mean all. Uh, that means that the earth is in the service of God. That means you are in the service of God. That means wicked people are in the service of God. That means good angels are in the service of God. Wicked angels are in the service of God. If you don't believe that, read 1 Kings 22 and find wicked angels answering to God and taking orders from him. The whole point is there is everything in creation is going to serve the purpose of God. When the earth is burned up, the earth will serve the purpose that God had for it, and the earth will show uh, that wickedness brings destruction. God causes them to stand in order to serve his purposes in his plan. An older commentator by the name of Ruskin put it this way, and I quote, From the ministering of the archangel to the labor of the insect, from the poising, and that means a steady state of the planets, to the gravitation of a grain of dust, the power and glory of all creatures and all matter consist in their obedience, not their freedom. All of it is under the God's control. All of it is empowered and is moved and held fast by him. All right, let's move on to verses 92 to 95. And there we learn that the word of God saved him, we're talking about our psalmist, and revived him in affliction. So whatever the affliction was, and it's interesting that most of the time we run across this in the Psalms, they talk about affliction or trouble or disaster, but they don't tell you what exactly it is. And I think that's so we can apply it to our situation. It doesn't have to be exactly the affliction that the psalmist underwent. It can just be affliction, and we can apply the truths of God. So the word of God saved him and revived him in affliction, and it will save him from the wicked who wait to destroy him. So in verse 92, uh, where I want to read that again, if your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. That means I have to decide in this life, what am I going to delight in to guide me? What am I going to delight in to give me direction in, in my life? Is it me? Is it my own will? Is it the things I think are right? Or am I going to choose God? Or am I going to choose a different God? Am I going to choose the enemy? We have a choice. But the psalmist took his delight in the law of God, and it is able to save in the midst of our affliction. The psalmist credits the word of God for its power to show him how to navigate the threats of those who want to afflict him. How do I get through this mess? What am I going to say? How am I going to act? What's going to happen with this other person? What's going on here? Well, the point is this. It doesn't matter what the situation is. I navigate the threats the way God wants me to. And to do that, I have to know what God said for me to do. That's why we come and worship. That's why we study God's word. That's why we go to Bible studies and Sunday school. So we can apply God's word. This happens instantly. Okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to not yell back at this person. I'm going to follow Proverbs, and I'm going I'm to return a soft answer because that's what God said. Well, he states that the word of God was the only one to save him. And that's true for us. No other word or power could have brought this freedom from the affliction. It's like saying, if it weren't for that life preserver, they threw me from the boat, I would have drowned. I wouldn't have made it. And God's word is the life preserver for those of us who are in the, the wicked seas of this world. Remember, the sea is a picture of death and evil. 
So that is, without God's help, or slash forward slash word, we would not have made it. God's word is the best guide for trouble and affliction in life. In verse 93, he, he, the psalmist, will never forget what God says because that was the power that revived him in his trouble. And as you use God's word and apply God's word to your situations, you're going to find out that God knows what he's talking about, and I'm going to follow him next time as well. We hold dear as humans that which has meant life to us. And God's word, when it means life to us, we, we hold it dear. Never forget in that verse 93, has the idea that we will remember the word of God and act on what it says for us to do. I will always seek his word with a view to doing his word. In it, we find help and guidance for life's troubles. In verse 94, he is faithful as, as a covenanteer in the Old Testament, and he is of God's own possession, and based on his relationship, he cries out to the Lord, save me. That's who he trusts in. And one of the ways God saves us is he gives us clues in his word and tells us exactly what to do when we have a situation where we don't know what to do. By the way, God likes us to be in those positions. He likes us to depend on him. He loves us to have faith. So go ahead and cry out to God. He is our father. He loves us. And we have a commitment to him and him to us. It is his desire to save us, not to destroy us. Yours and my relationship to him means something to us. It means something to Jesus as well. Again, he mentions that he is dependent on the word of God, and it just happens in this, this strophe over and over and over, and he seeks it out. His answer to the problem, verse 95, of his enemies seeking to destroy him is that he will diligently consider God's testimonies. If you don't know what to do, take time instead of calling all your buddies and calling all your friends and checking here and there, and what, are they really mad, are they this or that? Go to the word of God and say, let me find things, Lord. Help me find things. Bring things to my memory where I can look up verses. That's why it's so important for you to have a good concordance so you can find these verses and read them and say, aha, that's what I'm supposed to do, and I'm going to do it. We consider God's testimony. These refer to the essence of, of the law of God. Well, this is the believer's battle plan. It is to check out closely what the commander-in-chief laid out for us to do in that situation. And by the way, every battle plan of God begins with an act of faith by his people. And it ends with an act of faith because nothing with God works without faith. God can do anything. God cannot be stopped. God laughs at the kings of the earth that mock him. When people say, this is what we're going to do uh, and it's evil, God says in heaven, oh really? You think that's what you're going to do? We don't have the power to say that. The evil don't. God can do anything. He can't be stopped. God often wants to know do we trust him? Are we willing to lay that on the line? Are we willing to do what God said? Don't yell back at this person. Do what God said. Just return us off to him. Yeah, but they deserve to be yelled at. No. God said, don't do that. We don't use the weapons of the enemy to fight the enemy. And that's what we would be doing. One indication that we trust him is that we never give up on the word of God. But rather, we seek it diligently. Apply it to life situations. And then finally, in verse 96... Earthly completeness is limited. I'm using that word instead of the word perfection there. Earthly completeness is limited and will come to an end, but the commandment of God is exceedingly broad. God's word will never come to an end. The completeness of all things created, now fallen, will come to an end because they're fallen. The perfection of this world was messed up by man, and, it, the, and whatever is uh, supposedly perfect in this world is not lasting. But in the contrast to that, the eternal perfect command of God is boundless. 
It, exceed, it is exceedingly broad and covers all, all aspects of life. God's words are words of life that transcend the present world. So count on them. Jesus, the word of God, gave the disciples the true words of his father. And I want to look at John 17, 8 to, to uh, solidify that in our minds. John 17, verse 8 says, For the words which you, God the Father, gave me, Jesus, I have given to them, the apostles. And they received them, and they truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. So that verse teaches a lot of things. What I'm trying to point out is that Jesus gave us the truth, and we can rely on it. And Jesus is the word. He is the creator. He holds all things together. You can rely on that. His word is firm. And that Jesus, uh, speaking in, in later verses here, in, in verses 11 to 17 of John 17, shows us that God's words are meant to provide for the apostles' safety and their sanctification, their holiness. Let me just read that. I'm no longer in the world. Jesus is talking. Uh, that's a prophetic perfect, by the way. He's actually still there, but he's talking as if he's gone. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, and he hears his prayer, keep them in your name, the name which you gave, have given to me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given to me, and I guarded them, and not one of them has perished, but the sin of perdition, or eternal, eternal uh, damnation is what that means, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have joy and, made, and, uh, and joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask to that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, Satan. Uh, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And then he ends by saying, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And that goes right along with our psalm. God meant the word of God to save you in this disaster of a world that we're in. God meant for this to give you guidance when you're dealing with wicked and evil people. And certainly, as the apostles found out, they worked for them. They will work for us if we'll do it. So let me give you some applications as far as what we've learned here tonight. Number one, when we are under attack, and it doesn't matter what it is, okay, we follow God's revealed plan for us. Now, not every attack is the same, so I have to find the, the verses that are going to help me with that particular issue. Somebody's yelling at me, okay, Proverbs 15, that's where I go. Somebody is, is slandering me, there's lots of places in the Bible you can get, you can get uh, good advice for that, but we're looking for that. Secondly, the word of God is to encourage our hope and commitment to him because his word is firm and everlasting. Thirdly, the worse things get, and the Bible promises that things are just going to get worse, the worse things get, the more we search God's word, which inspires loyalty to him. Things are going to get rough for the church as long as God tarries with us, and our lifeline is going to be what the word of God says. God, finally, uh, God's words are words of life for us. The worst thing we could do is to decide to abandon the word of God when we're in trouble and decide to do things our own way. All right, let's stand together and we'll close in prayer.
Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you wrote this book, not only to give us eternal life, but to help us to have life here and now. You know that you have left us